Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 360, and I had a conversation with Peter Clothier. Peter is a world-renowned art critic, a practicing Buddhist, a professor, an expat Englishman, and a celebrated and well-known author. His most recent book, Dear Harry, Letters to My Father, touches on, quote, everything from his loss of Christian faith, intimate matters, and the inevitability of aging and death. Peter's dad, Harry, was an Anglican minister. We talk about Peter's own role as a father, World War II, meditation, intimacy, writing, art, and how he's still open to learning about himself after more than eight decades on the planet. Really enjoyable conversation, really interesting. Uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. Look for All I Ever Wanted Was Everything as my most recent record. And check out my relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube called Are We There Yet? Podcast Show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for telling people about the show. I really appreciate it. Email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com for any old reason at all. And take care of yourselves. Be love. Be kind. Lift each other up. And here we go. Peter Clothier, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. And our mutual friend, Leah, suggested that we chat. Yes. I'm trying to get her on the show as well. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I haven't seen her for a little while. I have been a strange kind of interim place myself. My wife has been very sick for a few months now, and that's been taking up a lot of our time and energy. So we're hoping that uh, she's turning the corner now. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I wish good health. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be tricky. I mean, you had mentioned before we started recording that that you two have been together for quite a long, long, long time. and that Yeah. Well, the same 54 years that we've been living on the hill, actually. <laughs> we uh, got that first little house on Clayton um, 54 years ago. That was the first time we moved in together. How was that adjustment? Uh, that was pretty good. We had both been married before. So, you know, there were a lot of initial problems in, in, uh, I had two, two sons and, uh, I still have two sons as a matter of fact. And so that was, you know, it took some adjustment. They went off to live in Iowa with their mother, which was quite difficult. So then we had a huge earthquake the first year we lived there, 1971, the Silmar earthquake. Uh, you know, it was at six o'clock in the morning or something. We all rushed out into the street and uh, we discovered that virtually all our, our neighbors were gay. <laughs> it was a, a strange moment. <laughs> That's hilarious. We were welcomed there by our community because uh, we were a little outside the norm because we were living in sin. 
which was, you know, not particularly common in those days. So they thought we were uh, kindred, a bit outsider too. What's a little sin amongst amongst friends? Yes, well, we enjoyed it. (laughs) Tell me about where you grew up. Well, I grew up uh, in England. I was born up in the north in Newcastle, which makes me a Geordie, which is uh, it's rather like being a Cockney, but uh, instead of being born in the, si- uh, in the sound of Bow Bells, you're born on Tyneside in, in Newcastle. Now, I've always been very proud of being a Geordie, but I only lived there for a year and a half of my life. And uh, my parents moved south uh, for my father's health to the Midlands. He was a parish priest, so he had uh, several different parishes there. And the one that uh, I spent most of my childhood years in was called Aspley Guys. We lived there for a number of years, including the war years. We were there from 1936 to 45. Do you have strong memories of that time? Very strong, yes. My memories are mostly around the people who who came to live in our house. We had a very big old uh, Victorian rectory. And with lots of rooms, and we had a lot of people staying in our house, um, uh, people from the Air Force Base down below and uh, some naval people from time to time. But the the ones I remember the most are the Bletchley Girls. It's the place where they took the Enigma machine when they stole the uh, Enigma machine from, I think, from a German submarine. And it became the source of a huge amount of intelligence during the war. And the Bletchley girls were the young women, very smart young women, who went to work there for mostly for the uh, uh, kind of star men, like people like um, Turing, Alan Turing, and others uh, who were the you know big wigs at the place. Sure. But the Bletchley girls are, you know, there was even a TV series about them at one point. And uh, so they, they, we had three of them living in our house. They were a very, very powerful presence. And then also during the war, during the Blitz in London, the East Enders were streaming out of London to get away from the bombs. Absolutely terrified, terrorized people. And they would come to the village, they'd come in trains and buses. We would put them up as a kind of way station, put them up in our our apple basement where we kept our apples and potatoes and things. And we had rows of them sleeping down in the basement. And I remember their fear very clearly. And uh, my father trying to calm them down. So I I do have a lot of more memories. We had bombs fall close by. German bombers would sometimes overfly London and have some of their load left. Uh, so just to jettison their load, they would drop them on our village to lighten, the, lighten themselves up to get back to Germany. Uh, so I remember that, the bombs falling. And uh, we had a Messerschmitt crash land in the farmer's field next to us. So it was a lot of, for me, the war was Kind of an exciting boyhood experience. Uh, although, you know, I I realized, of course, how serious it was and, and uh, how hard it was on, on the British people at the time. As a, a child from the parish and having your 
your parents, obviously that's a status position, although it's not a rich position generally. Did you feel the pangs of hunger and the rationing that was going on or because you were caring for other people, did that not really hit you as hard? Not as hard maybe because um, we had ration books, of course. And with all these people living in our house, uh, they pulled the ration books and everyone gave their ration books to my mother. So she was able to use uh, quite a number of ration books to put together our meals. So we, we ate pretty well. I don't remember ever being hungry during the war. I remember missing things like sugar. Chocolate, sugar, nylon. Yeah. Nylon. <laughs> it was, um, we had a sweet shop down in the village and there were, uh, so the sweets were a very, very short supply. We did really extraordinarily well. We had great Christmases, great feasts, and, and um, yeah, for us in the vicarage, in, in many ways, it was a good time. Did you feel a part of everything going on in that, I think for some kids growing up in situations like that, when their parents are being pulled in a lot of different directions and caring for other people's children and making sure other people are okay. Did you have a sense of longing for that attention or were you in with everybody and it was okay? At home, I was, you know, we were certain while I was still at home, we were certainly a part of everything because we had the BBC news, which was, you know, the center of, uh, of attention in the house at six o'clock every night, you know, Big Ben and, and um, the six o'clock news would start and we would all be gathered around the radio. So in that sense, I did feel connected with what was going on. But then I was sent away to school at the age of six, seven. I can't remember exactly. I always say six, but I think I'm exaggerating. My parents, my father particularly, felt that this, I would get a better education this way and that uh, I would perhaps be safer in, this, in a sense. So I was sent off to school at, at um, the age of six, and the school was um, a long way up north in, in Ambleside in the, in the uh, Lake District. And that started, you know, I was away for 12 years. So... Um, we were, you know, we had two weeks at Christmas, two weeks at Easter, and four weeks in the summer. And that was the full amount of time I spent at home. So in that sense, to answer your question, I did feel did feel alienated, separated from, from the family. I imagine every time you came home for a holiday, these were strangers moving about. How would how do you connect with people that you when you're being really raised by your fellow school? children and the teachers and things how do you how do you well by that time by the time i was sent away to school uh it was uh the end of the war was approaching so uh we didn't have so many strangers living with us and i didn't have the same kind of connection with them so it was a it was a whole different experience i meant the strangers of your own family being away from them and coming well, back and trying to integrate yeah it is a strange, and I th I think personally, and I write about this a lot in the in the book. It's called Dear Harry, and the subtitle is Letters to My Father, and it was written many years after my father's death, 
And uh, this is in, in the context of what we're talking about now. You know, I I did feel disconnected from from my family, and and uh, as soon as I left England, we can come back over this. As soon as I left England, uh, right after my Cambridge years, I started. Well, first went to Germany, then to Canada, and then to Iowa, and then to Southern California. So we, I got further and further away from my family in a sense. And uh, these letters that I wrote were an attempt to to reconnect with him. First of all, I started out thinking well, I wanted to get get to know him better. Then halfway through, I realized that wasn't what I wanted at all. What I wanted was for him to know me better. And uh, so that was that was it. But it is, you know, it is. It's about trying to to remember things about my father and things about our relationship that were meaningful and that really shaped my life, and some of which I, I only fully understood in retrospect. One story that I remembered about my father was um, the skipping rope. I, When I was, I guess, five, five years old, uh, they sent uh, me and my sister to dancing classes in, in a little town nearby. It was thought at that time that dancing classes were good for posture and, and all those things. Um, uh, we, we went to dancing classes. And one of the things that happened in dancing classes were, were, was that uh, we played with skipping ropes. And every time a skipping rope um, uh, was produced, little Peter would howl. I was so, so scared. And my father, one day, uh, hearing this, he called me into his study one day. Being called into my father's study was a, was a, was a big event. You know, there I was a little five-year-old boy. And my father in his cassock and, and 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 dog collar and you know in many ways he was he was kind of a god figure to me because there he was in church every Sunday standing up and talking to God. So uh, to be called into into his study was was a a big and rather intimidating moment. And I, I went into the study and and there he was sitting with in his cassock with a skipping rope on his lap. And he told me the story. I should back up a little bit. He had studied psychology at Cambridge in the 1920s, which is a very early period in, in psychology. But he knew about Freud and Jung, and he'd made his studies. He was very impressed by that. And he was something of an amateur psychologist himself. But anyway... He uh, told me, he put the skipping rod around my neck and he told me the story of my birth, how I'd been born with the umbilical cord tied around my neck. I was a blue baby. And I only survived thanks to the midwife who came along with a pair of scissors and snipped the cord away and, and um, gave me a good slap on the behind and made me cry. And that's, uh, you know. But he told me this story. He put the rope around my neck and he tightened it very slightly, very gently, telling me this story. And he said at the end, you don't have to be scared of skipping ropes anymore, which was pretty amazing. 
I mean, this was 1943, 1944, and very, you know, very much in advance of his time. So this kind of treatment is uh, is is known and acknowledged today, but but it's, it's a treatment that's fairly frequently practiced. But back in those days, it was quite extraordinarily perceptive of him to uh, and daring of him to do that. So. That was, you know, part of the story of my dad. His his extraordinary perception, his uh, his sensitivity, his understanding of human nature. Did you believe in the God he believed in? Well, you know, I went through my childhood going to church every Sunday, and I went uh, when I was sent away to school. They were Anglo-Catholic schools. They were very high church schools. And we used to go to church every Sunday and and uh, every evening at those schools. Uh, I suppose as a child, I believed in these things. As I got to be a teenager, I found myself believing in them less and less. Um, okay. When I was 12, 13, I guess, I was confirmed. I went through the process of, of um, catechism class and learned about all these things. And uh, the bishop came for confirmation. And I was confirmed. And my father's confirmation book, uh, present for me, was a, a little book called St. Swithin's Prayer Book. And St. Swithin's Prayer Book had a huge section at the end about sin. Every kind of sin that anyone could ever imagine, it was all listed there and explained. And so, how you you know how how you go go to confession and what you say when you go to confession. You know, I was a big sinner. <laughs> By the time I was I was thirteen, I was masturbating gaily <laughs> as often as I could, and I realized, you know, this was a terrible sin. But it wasn't a sin to me. It was just just being a boy. And because I was in a boys' school, all my sexual experiences were with other boys. And I think that was instrumental in making me think that, you know, maybe this God is, is um, questionable, at least. That I didn't attach my sense of humanity to him at all, to this God. And by the time I was 18, that was the end for me. I was never interested again. Throughout my life, throughout my father's life, when I, when I went to visit him, I would go to church, I would take communion, but really out of, out of desire not to hurt him. I married a Jew. I think my mother found that quite difficult to start with, although she wouldn't dare say so. But then they came over uh, one uh, Passover to stay with us, one of the two times they visited us in, in America, in Los Angeles, they were invited with us to a seder at my father-in-law's house. My father-in-law was, was a big kind of rabbinical-style Jew who loved uh, uh, ceremony and loved all the action in the seder, all the discussion and so on. And he and my father got into this great discussion about uh, the relationship between, between the Passover seder and the Last Supper and you know, sharing the rituals and so on. 
you know, my, my father truly respected other religions. He grew in, in, in his older age. He grew, got very close to the whole ecumenical movement um, in Europe, which was an attempt to bring different religions and different, you know, Protestant and Catholic together. Did your mom come around? Yes, I think so. You know, I think if you if you asked my wife, she felt that she was never really able to replace my first life, wife of my first wife, that there was always this little standoffishness with with my my mother. But my mother was a little standoffish anyway. <laughs> she was a, a Welsh woman, uh, ooh, a little bit shy, I think, uh, and a little bit reticent. And I, I know that she came across to quite a number of people as being aloof, distant. So I, I don't think that that uh, bridge was ever completely crossed. What was uh, the the boys' school like? Well, I went to two different boys' schools. Where there was a prep school, uh, which is the younger school, the elementary version of the uh, of the private school in England. That's the prep school. That was the school. It was uh, based in Sussex, but during the war, it was uh, uh, evacuated up north to the Lake District. It's a very beautiful place. Then re we returned to Sussex after the war. And uh, I spent most of my early school years there. You know, I suppose it was a good, I'm sure it was a good school in terms of the education I got. I think it was me more than the school. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't an easy mixer, you know, I wasn't, didn't like sports very much. I just, you know, I just felt I never fit in and always felt uh, uh, alienated and isolated and uh, never grew into loving the experience as some did. It's pretty much the same at public school, which was the secondary version. It was just it was it was a difficult experience and not a pleasant one for me. I know I, you know there are many men who came out with uh, great careers ahead of them. You know, they went on to become the prime, prime ministers and the captains of industry and the military leaders, the generals, and so on. That's where the, uh, the public school is, was then more particularly the source of uh, all um, the higher British level of society was then. I hope it's less so now, although I don't England, know England very well anymore. Then there were many people like myself who really suffered through it. There is a, an organization now called uh, Boarding School Survivors, which uh, was uh, developed by a man I, I got friendly with after, after beginning to learn more about myself and, and about my background and understand things a little better. That is a, an organization that takes in the well, It um, serves men and women both, who were in some way damaged by the experience of boarding school. You know, being sent away from home at the age of six or seven, that's, that's really, it's a big deal. It's almost a, an act of cruelty, I think, looking back on it. 
and it's damage that took me a very long time to recover from. If indeed I have recovered from it, I don't know. <laughs> it is a, a lasting wound. Right. And it's one part Lord of the Flies, I'm sure. One part there's cruelty and abuse, sexual and, and physical violence. And I don't think, I mean, through the 70s, through the 80s, even, there's still schools that kids get sent to or camps that do so much damage to yeah. the psyche. I started my recovery, uh, uh, what, what I think of as my recovery from that experience in the mid 1950s, uh, in my mid 50s. I was in 1992. I was uh, suffering considerably in my life. Uh, we had a, a, a big family crisis with my daughter and her health, and she was just growing up into college age. And uh, she was uh, with a therapist, and I called the uh, therapist one day, and I said, well, you know, what can I do for my daughter? Because I, Mr. F I've always been Mr. Fix-It. I see a problem, and I go straight for it, and I find the solution. And, you know, that's, that's what I was taught. This person said, well, if you want to help your daughter, you need to work on yourself. And I didn't even know what that meant. And I had always been uh, very hostile to therapy of any kind. So I, I, on June, January 1st, 1992, I went to my desk to see my to-do list. I keep to-do lists. And there on my to-do list, there were telephone calls I had to return and there were five names on, on the list, and, and each one of them was a Peter. So I kind of joked to myself, this has to be the year of Peter. And, and, um, and uh, three months later, I was invited, I was commissioned to go to, uh, to Rome, Peter's city, uh, to write about a project by uh, Los Angeles-based artist Peter Erskine who is doing a huge uh, light space installation at the Trajan Market in Rome. It's a great, great experience. There was another uh, Peter in Rome at the time from Los Angeles. His name is Peter Shelton, a wonderful sculptor. And uh, so there we were, a uh, uh, constellation of Peters from Los Angeles in, in Peter's city. Uh, I'd been in Rome a couple of years before, and I really wanted to find... Um, Michelangelo's Moses. I had seen David in Florence before, and there was David, that big, spunky, youthful, wonderful projection of, of the power of youth. I wanted to see Moses because he was the opposite end of life. You know, the old man, a little stooped and bent over. And I, I had really wanted to see that. I couldn't find it. We looked all over for the church and that particularly here, two years before, we just couldn't find the church. Kind of no accident, accident. And um, this year I was determined to see the Moses. So we found the church, and the church was San Pietro in Vincoli, St. Peter in Chains. I happened to have been born on the feast of St. Peter's Chains. So we went to the church and uh, wandered around the church and, and uh, saw the Moses, which is an incredible piece of work. 
And uh, then Ellie went off wandering in, in one direction, and I went wandering in another, and I found myself looking down into a crypt chapel where there was a reliquary. You know about reliquaries? Mm-hmm. They keep, you know, St. Teresa's little thing, fingernail, or whatever it is. And there in this reliquary is a, is a beautiful gold box. And in the box were St. Peter's chains. If you know the story of Peter, uh, who after Christ died, he went around preaching the gospel. The Romans didn't like that at all. So they threw him in jail. And the Lord sent his angel down, and the angel burst asunder the chains. And Peter got out of jail and went on to preach the gospel. So these were the chains that purported to be those chains from which Peter had been released. And I stood there in this church of St. Peter in chains, looking down at those chains, my birthday. And I realized, you know, I've been wearing chains all my life. And I went back to Los Angeles with the with a very clear understanding that I needed to get rid of those chains. And the day after I got back, I went to one of those Art World co- cocktail parties. I was a writer and was fairly prominent in the art community for a long time. I was at one of those Art World cocktail parties, and I ran into a man, and I told him this story. And he said, I know just what you need to do. And he told me about this weekend that he had done, training weekend. And he told me it was called the, the, the New Warrior Training Adventure. And I thought, oh, my God, that is the last thing I need to do. Warriors, training, adventures, Jesus, not for me. So, of course, I signed up the next day and went down to the, uh, uh, to the training. And it was, it was a complete life changer for me. I mean, it, I was, it opened me up like an egg, cracked me open, and um, it was the start of a whole new period in, in my life where I began to be able to look at myself with some honesty. It really changed my life. It uh, led me eventually uh, into the uh, Buddhist path, uh, because I realized that so this was another way of looking into myself, looking into my own heart, finding out who I was, finding out what I needed to do with my life, where I needed to go, how I could become a better man and a better father. So that was that 1992, that was the beginning of, of, uh, of that period of recovery for me. That's incredible. It's also in my book, <laughs> the whole story. I think people feel that that there's a certain point where it's too late to find oneself or to figure out and unravel the damage done. So it's nice to hear that it's never too late, you know. Well, I was 55. I have uh, staffed many of those weekends since I've I've been on staff. And there have been men both younger and older than I was. I mean, I have seen an 80-year-old man go through that weekend and and find the same kind of opportunity to make change in his life. It's beautiful. So I would recommend anyone 
you know, who might be listening to this to investigate. It's very easy to find out about it. You can go to the uh, a website of the Mankind Project, which is the umbrella organization. Go to their site and find out about the the initial training program, but also about other, other programs they offer. Every other Thursday, I meet with on Zoom with um, up to 10 other men who have all been through the same experience, with whom I have a, a real sense of brotherhood. And uh, we just meet for an hour and talk for an hour. And it's, it was, it's what keeps me on the ground, it keeps me centered, it keeps, uh, you know, it's a very important part of my life, even today. Uh, what? 30 years later. What was something that you learned about yourself that you either didn't know or maybe weren't willing to look at? I learned that I had a heart. What you learn in boarding school, amongst other things, is how to protect yourself, how to build the armor that you need to defend yourself against all your perceived uh, insults and enemies and, and uh, all the things coming up, up against you that you are truly afraid of. And you learn not to show your emotions, you know, you know obviously not to cry, but you also learn not to, uh, not to get angry. I mean, I had an experience in, in, at the age of uh, oh, seven or eight in my first boarding school where I got into a hassle with, a, with another boy who's a little older, a little bigger than me. And the teacher in charge of the, you know, the, whatever it was, was a, a recreation period, uh, saw that we were angry with each other and said, you've got to settle this like gentlemen. So I got our boxing gloves for each of us, and all the boys stood around in a circle around us and and uh, we had to go at it and i was just beaten to a pulp i i know how to fight <laughs> so you know you learn from experiences like that you don't get angry and you don't show your anger if you are angry you bottle it down so and you don't show fear you know these are things that um that you learn very intensely in in, in that circumstance and I had grown up and emerged from those schools a very tightly armored person. And one of the things that I learned, uh, aside from how, how to protect myself, was, was one of the things I learned the th uh, at the training was I really did have a heart and it was an important part of my, um, of my being as a man. I'd lived so much in my head. I was very smart, I thought, anyway. You know, I, I could deal things. I was, I was practical. I was um, efficient. Uh, I had been both an academic professor and a college dean. And um, so I was administratively skilled. But the one thing that I was really missing was a heart. And so that's the most important discovery of that. I also learned, by the way, and I, and I think I only came to understand this later, that I had a body. Again, I had been living in my head 
for an awful long time. And I was kind of scared and ashamed of my body. I never felt it was good enough. I never felt uh, comfortable in it. That was also an important part of the, uh, of the weekend. It wasn't, it wasn't just heart. It was, it was body. It was learning to, to accept and to begin to take care of my body. Like the Tin Man, the heart was there all yeah. along. You just had right. to be reminded. Yeah. And I was a bit like the Cowardly Lion, too. <laughs> wow. How did your relationship with your kids blossom after that? It must have been an awakening. Yeah, I think it was, you know, uh, with my, my two sons who were brought up in their, in their young years. They were brought up in Iowa City, which is a long way from here. And I could afford that time to bring them out only once a year in the summer. So we had a, uh, a relationship not unlike mine with my father when we were growing up. I tried to fit, a, uh, you know, a year of fatherhood into a month. You know, how, whether they're likely to admit it or not, my sons certainly suffered their own wounds from that period in their life. I came home from that weekend thinking how wonderful if my sons could do this. And they have never been interested. They always think this is a, a strange quirk of their fathers that <laughs> is, is of no interest to them at all. They, in many ways, they're like I was as a, as a younger man. I have a wonderful relationship with them now. We, uh, we talk regularly on the telephone. Um, my younger son comes, well, he's lived, still living in Iowa, so he comes that's all once or sometimes twice a year to spend some time with us. Uh, he had his own long and very difficult bout with cancer in his early 50s. And so he has now a, a point of common relationship with Ellie that he didn't really have before. So we have a deeper relationship now. I, I, I don't have with either of my sons that kind of, uh, I have a very good relationship with them, but not that kind of depth of relationship that I have with some of the men that I went through that, uh, that, that work with, with whom I share that experience. Did your sons read Dear Harry? I don't think so. You know, I can't force that kind of a book on them. I, I don't even ask them to read it. Uh, my daughter, who was suffering so badly at that time, you know, she has grown up into a wonderful young woman. She works at the American Film Institute. She manages the catalog of 100 years of film there. Wow, that's a cool job. In the past couple of years, she has had, uh, past three years, she's had two major grants from the National Endowment for Humanities uh, to uh, assist her in, in, in her work there. She has, uh, she's a single mother to a, a wonderful young grandson of ours. He's 11 years old. My oldest son has three children, one of whom is now uh, past university and is starting out uh, a career as a teacher. Very proud of her. The other two are just finishing up their bachelor uh, degrees at different universities. My younger son, my younger grandson is at the University of Nottingham doing classical studies, Greek and Roman, 
if you can believe. Very proud of that. And my granddaughter, my younger granddaughter, is at my old college in Cambridge. You know, I'm curious about your book, The Pilgrim's Staff. What brought that to light? Oh, that's a whole different subject. And the title brought made me think of Chaucer. <laughs> Chaucer, <laughs> yeah. It is a bit Chaucerian. I have an abiding interest in sex. And The Pilgrim's Staff is a fairly thinly described, if somewhat exaggerated, uh, story of my own sexual life. It is um, the pilgrim stuff, obviously, is, well, I don't need to go into detail. But it's set in the 17th century, and it gave me the opportunity to play with language a bit writing in the language of the 17th century, and to uh, distance myself a little from kind of current sexuality. I put it in, into a, a historical frame, which, which was convenient and, and a little less embarrassing. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun writing that book. I really loved writing the book. and I think it's a good one. But recently... You know, one of the reasons I, I've been preoccupied in, in uh, recent weeks, I have been finishing the second of what I think might be a trilogy of novels, which are written, uh, the narrator is um, it's written in the persona of a woman. I don't know where this came from. I'm just channeling this voice, which happens to be the voice of a woman. And they are uh, strongly erotic novels. Um, some might call them pornographic. I don't particularly care about the distinction, quite honestly. Don't tell Florida. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I'm working on that. I finished one. I really liked it, and I really enjoyed working on it. And now I'm 300 pages into, into a sequel. I don't, I don't know where this stuff comes from. Here I am, an 86-year-old man writing in the voice of a 36-year-old woman. It is very strange. I have to tell you, the, uh, I sent the first book out thinking, oh, my God, I, you know, I really shouldn't be doing this. This is uh, you know, out of bounds. I sent the book off to uh, three women readers, and they all, they all loved it. And not one of them raised objections to the the way I was describing sex from a woman's point of view, which is what was really worrying me. So I was pleased with that, and I was encouraged to start on the second book, which I'm, I'm now nearly finished with. And the title of which is? Uh, it's called Bad Girl. The first one, let's see if I can remember the title even. I forgot, I forgot the title of my new novel. <laughs> but anyway... I'm thinking this might be a trilogy, and if so, uh, you know, I might try to publish all three or find a publisher for all three, mm -hmm. because publishers tend to like sequels if they can, you know, see a follow-up for something. So, and I, why am I telling you all this? Uh, it's, that's what happens. <laughs> so, Dear Harry persists, which is a book about creativity. Yes. Yes. 
the Pilgrim Staff, and then While I Am Not Afraid, Secret of a Man's Heart. That's a memoir. That's a, that's the book that came out of the experience that I was describing you. At the Warrior Weekend. Yes, that was published, I think, in 1994 or something like that. It's quite vulnerable to put all this out into the world. Well, there are other books, too. I, I was commissioned to write a book about David Hockney, if you know his work. And uh, that was back in 1996, I think. It, obviously, it's very out of date now because he's done an awful lot of work since. But this was the um, Abbeville Press look, puts out a series called The Modern Masters. And this was The Modern Masters, uh, David Hockney. So there was that. And then there have been other books um, closer to Persist. I did a book called Mindwork which came out of my experience of uh, Buddhism and, and working with the mind and finding out more about the mind. I did a book called Slow Looking back in, oh gosh, I guess the mid-90s when I was starting meditation myself and, and observing my own habits as an art critic, uh, going into galleries and wandering around and looking at paintings and then going home read, writing about them. And I decided that wasn't really good enough. So I started, uh, I came up with this idea for a practice called One Hour, One Painting. And I would invite small groups to sit in front of a single painting uh, for an hour with me. And I would do a guide. Uh, it was part meditation, part contemplation, part closed eye work, part open eye work, looking at the painting. And I wasn't talking about the painting. I wasn't talking about the artist. It wasn't about art history. And it's just about sitting and looking at a painting for an hour. And that proved to be quite popular. I wrote a book called uh, Slow Looking about that experience. And then there was another book I published uh, oh, a few years ago called A Serious Conversation with Myself. And it was a book about conscious aging. So, there, you know, there's a number of books along the way. And uh, before that, I wrote two novels, two books of poetry. So there have been books along the way. You're quite prolific. I, I, you know, I look at uh, a, a writer like, um, I don't know if you know him, Anthony Horowitz. He's an English writer. He writes television series like Foil's War. And uh, the Midsummer Murders. He's also yeah. a novelist and a children's book writer, and you know his that kind of pro productivity puts me to shame. Well, Stephen King writes a gazillion Steve, books. Uh, Stephen yeah. King is an another example. <laughs> yeah, you know, he books out puts out three books a year or whatever it is. So I don't consider myself really prolific, um, but I do keep writing. And that's, you know, there are a, a few things that really keep me on an even keel and help me to approach my latter years with a kind of equanimity. Uh, perhaps the most, well, no, I don't want to put them in order and importance, but certainly meditation is one of them. Something I do every day. And uh, it's a discipline and practice. And it keeps me centered. And the second thing is my writing. Another thing I do virtually every day, although I give myself Sundays off these days, at my wife's insistence, 
<laughs> I don't think I would if it weren't if it weren't for her saying you can't do this every day. And then there's my uh, conscious aging group, the group I told you about, of, uh, you know, maybe ten men who meet uh, every other Thursday for just an hour. And that's another kind of critical element in my life. Even though it takes you know, just a small amount of time, we share with each other the experience of growing old and various topics associated. I, I um, initiated a, a, a session the other day about fatherhood, about what it meant to be a father. We don't, we don't have to say a lot because we know so much about what's going on in each other's hearts that we have that connection. It's a very immediate, very, very deep, very brotherly connection. Do you feel that you still carry any regret or have you worked through it? I don't see it so much as regret. I see it as a sadness. And I certainly carry that sadness about a number of things, things that I, I felt that I've done in my life, which, you know, were consequential and not very helpful to anyone. And uh, sadness about my sons, sadness about, you know, no matter how much I write and how much I publish, I always feel that I should have done more, that I should have made a bigger contribution than I made. And there's a sadness around that. It's not, n none of it is particularly rational, but um, it's there. I don't, I, I don't see them as regrets. Regrets, you know, chastising yourself and, and, and telling. This is simply the realization that there could have been more, let's say. Do you believe in reincarnation? No, that's my big stumbling block. That's why I've never called myself a Buddhist. Um, I love the Dharma. I read uh, the Dharma. I, it's, a, it's a great guide in my life, all the Buddhist teachings. This is the one thing that is the real stumbling block that I can't really embrace, that what whole idea of, re of rebirth. I, I think that when we die, that's it. I uh, know. We talked about earlier about God. You know, I don't have a God to believe in. Uh, Buddhism does not, you know, Buddhism is helpful in this life. It does not uh, tempt me to believe in other lives or lives. I was talking yesterday about uh, an interesting conversation with, with a man who is talking about the survival of energy, that maybe that there is some kind of energy about our our presence in the world that survives in some way. Uh, I am in my old age, and I have to say, you know, 86, going on 87 this summer, I can't pretend to be young any, anymore. And I kind of don't like those people who tell me, well, it's only a number and things of that kind. I think that's bullshit, you know. When you're old, you're old. And I, I do like to think that, you know, the body is not everything. That uh, I can think the of the body as, as a corpse in, in meditation and experience some kind of 
energy force, some kind of life force in me, some maybe a chi. I don't, I don't know what it is. But I do like to think that there's something there that is just not just just the body that I'm living in. Why do you think you decided that God didn't exist for you or doesn't exist at all? Made no sense. I mean, I lived through, through World War II. You know, how can, how can you continue to believe in, in, in a God who permits the Holocaust? And who permits, if he's almighty, if he's all whatever it is, you know, how can he permit millions of people to die killing each other in, 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 a, in a senseless war? In his name. <laughs> in his name. In his name. Yeah. I mean, that's quite aside from the kind of scientific, the uh, age of, of um, enlightenment and, and, um, and of humanism that we've been through in the past two or three centuries. I mean, they've opened, for better or worse, that thinking has opened our eyes to look at ourselves and our place in the universe in an entirely different kind of a way. Mm -hmm. We do not, the sun is not the center of the universe. Everything does not evolve about human beings and their, their pitiful existence. Um, from every point of view, I, th I think it's very, very hard to believe in, in God today. It, and it's, and it's uh, irrational in a way that doesn't, doesn't sit well with me. Peter, tell people how they might find you out in the world. Well, I have a website, um, peterclothia.com. Maybe foolishly, but I do quite a lot of posting on Facebook. Uh, you can find me under Peter Clothier on Facebook. And I publish, you know, a lot about my life, quite honestly, uh, what's going on in my life. I get criticized sometimes from, uh, from more serious people about, uh, you know, why do you write about yourself? Why do you have to say all these things about yourself and so on? But then I have a, a lot of people who read uh, what I write because it speaks to them about their own lives, about their own experience. And the comments that I get are almost universally uh, of the kind, I'm so happy you're, you're writing about this. It relates directly to something that I experienced, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I, I write to, to make that connection with other human beings. And Facebook may seem like a very strange place to do that, but it has offered me a forum where I have maybe 100, maybe 200 people who read me with some regularity, 50 to 100 people who comment fairly regularly, and a greater number who do that little like or love or whatever it is that you do on Facebook. So it's a great resource for me. It has been a, a wonderful resource. I, I do begin to wonder about it now with so much um, going on about privacy. And, and so far as my personal privacy is concerned, I don't have anything private anymore. It's all out there. Whatever you read of mine, you're reading about me. 
And uh, if you're reading my erotic novels, you're reading about my sexuality. If you're uh, um, reading Dear Harry, you're reading about me and my father. And, you know, it's it's all out there. And I don't care anymore. It doesn't bother me in, in the way, should I be saying this? Uh, you know, what are people going to think of me? That, that's meaningless at this point in my life. I'm too old to worry about it. But I do worry about privacy, the other aspect of privacy, and that is uh, information being used and spread at astonishing and lightning speed, disinformation uh, going out about the um, purposeful misinterpretation of things that people say. I'm, I'm aware that being on Facebook, I'm exposing myself to that. I have been scammed very badly. A couple of years ago, uh, I, I got an email, a fish, an email that nowadays I would immediately recognize as a fishing expedition. I think it was, uh, it was told me I had been overpaid something and it gave me a telephone number where I could, I could solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And that got me into a oh, month's worth of really being thoroughly scammed and done out of a lot of money. And I felt very foolish, very embarrassed, very, uh, you know. And it made me realize how careful you have to be even with simple email these days. Well, now they're using AI deepfake technology to make phone calls. I was just reading about this on Newsweek that to make phone calls and then they've mimicked the voices of your loved ones. And so now they're telling people, make sure that your family has a, a code word that would be used so that you can tell whether or not it's actually who the person says. It's a crazy world out there. I got one this morning, in fact which purported to come from the Geek Squad. Oh, yeah, that's a, that one goes around all the time. Telling I, me that I had been charged $119. Yeah, those are all fake. The Geek Squad renewal. one. Uh, yeah. and, um, They're so, banking on people calling, and then that once no. they get them on the phone, they can get them out of all their money. I worry about that for my parents. Yeah, well, it's, it's a new world. I mean, we were no, not brought up with computers. Peter, this has been a really, really a pleasure. Thank you. Yes. Well, I hope it works out for you on your on your um, podcast. Yeah, I love the whole idea of it. I have not, I'm afraid, listened to very much of it because uh, I've been preoccupied with finishing my novel. Understandable. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I love the ideas behind it, and and uh, anything that has to do with humanity is all right with me. I yeah. tried it. I try to make it diverse and I tend toward topics that I really enjoy talking about. So well, I hope you've enjoyed today's. I have. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>